Hello, and welcome back to Shockingly Wicked, a true crime podcast where we bring you true crime cases from the headlines to the hometowns. I'm Brianna. I'm in the floor. <laughs> yeah, she was painting or something, and everything is like in the middle of the room. So, I mean, I have two walls left. You can't say that we are not dedicated. Yeah. <laughs> We are your hosts for this evening. So this episode starts our spooky season episodes. Happy October. I am super excited because that means Halloween is almost here. I will be working on the decorations in our yard here. Uh, Well, I was going to do it today, but then I took a nap instead. So I'll probably (laughs) do it tomorrow. (laughs) So I hope you guys are as excited about this mini series as we are. This case, I mean, everybody has probably heard of Eileen Warnos. Like, there's, she's she's infamous. So it's not like it's following our normal pattern of doing cases that aren't as well known. But I think because she is one of the most well known, this one might actually be more interesting to people because there's a lot of information out there, and also just a lot of contradicting information, including some of the information that was put into the movie that we're going to talk about. So, felt like it was the perfect way to start this off. Brittany, is there is there anything else you need to you wanted to add before we got started? I'm doing Amityville next yes. week. Yes. Yes, Amityville. Spooky. So it's yeah. spooky. I forgot how like how many jump scares were in that movie. <laughs> I didn't think there was going to be any and then there was like four and I was like, "Okay." Yeah. They they Fucking were just like rude. <laughs> they were just like uh, just making sure you're paying attention, but yeah. So the next one is Amityville. We're gonna keep the next couple ones a little bit more secretive until we get closer. But I guess we'll go ahead and dive right in. So this is Eileen Warnos. So her full name was Eileen Carol Warnos. She was actually born Eileen Carol Pittman, mm. but. At one point, she changes her name, and we will get into that. Her nickname was Lee, which is something that I was not aware of, but she went by Lee to a lot of people. I thought it was Leah. No, just Lee. Okay. (laughs) She was born on February 29th, 1956 in Rochester, Michigan. Her parents were Diane and Leo Pittman. They were young when they got married in June of 1954. I saw that Diane was 14 and Leo was 16. Okay. So I'm assuming that either she like was already pregnant with Eileen's older brother when they got married or like it happened real fast because they got married in June and then they had her older brother Keith in March of the following year. So the timeline was very, (laughs) very condensed. But like I mentioned, she had an older brother named Keith, who was less than a year older than her because Eileen was born in February of the year after that. So it, I think that's called like Irish twins or something like that. Yeah, it's Irish twins. Yeah. Yeah. Where they're born like less than a year apart. Yeah. Apparently, Eileen's father was diagnosed as schizophrenic at one point, and I feel like I need to mention that because I don't know how many people are actually aware of that. But from here, it just it gets real sad. Like the, her her life was rough, and obviously, I'm not saying that to excuse what she did, but I'm just putting it out there. Her life was rough. Yeah, it's like a nature versus nurture thing in this case. It's very yeah. nature. 
Yeah. So her dad was diagnosed as schizophrenic at one point. But by the time that Eileen was actually born, her father was incarcerated. So she never actually met him. So he was actually convicted of sex crimes against children. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then at some point, I think it was when she was 13 years old or so, he actually hung himself in his cell. He committed suicide. But I mean, like I said, she never really met him. So I don't know if she like felt really anything about that. But anyway, so when Eileen was only four years old, her mom, Diane, abandoned both her and Keith, and she left them with her parents, um, Lori and Britta Wernos. They legally adopted both Keith and Eileen, and that's how she ended up changing her last name to Wernos. So they weren't aware of the fact that they like her grandparents were not her actual parents because she was so young, I think. So I think it was around 12 years old when Eileen actually came like found out that they were her grandparents and not her parents but she still called them mom and dad because they raised her you know yeah by the time she was 11 she was exchanging sexual favors so i saw in certain areas that it said for like drugs cigarettes and food but eileen herself she claims that she never traded for cigarettes. She would just steal them. And I'll kind of go into it a little bit because I have a lot of quotes here from a book that is uh, called Dear Dawn, Eileen Wernos in her own words. Basically, she had a friend named Dawn Botkin, I believe was her last name, who she would write letters to while she was in was in prison. In the movie, that was the guy that tried to save her or no? No, Dawn was Dawn's a woman. So I don't think they mention her at all in the movie, but it was a friend she had from when she was little and they like reconnected, I think, when Eileen like went into prison. And so there was like hundreds and hundreds of letters that they had written back and forth. And so this book is literally just like excerpts of a bunch of letters from Eileen talking about like just life (laughs) i guess like there's a lot of information like firsthand accounts from her but it's it was interesting to read i didn't finish it i think i got about halfway through um because it's a lot of letters (laughs) it's a it's a long book but it's interesting because it's like you kind of see inside of her head a little bit Mm -hmm. as you're reading and you can see how like paranoid she was at the time and like understandably so but there was We'll we'll get more into that later, but I just wanted to mention that because this next bit, I have a quote directly from her. So apparently <laughs> she and her brother Keith had engaged in some type of incestual relationship with each other. Ew. Yeah. So one of the quotes from one of the letters in the book said, quote, Keith did have sex with me, but it was all mutual. Plus, we were so young, around nine or ten. Also, it was basically foreplaying, not downright intercourse, unquote. So I was like, hmm. Why are eight or nine year olds having sex? Yeah, that's what I'm wondering, too. She got started real early. And I think part of that is because there's rumors that her grandfather was like abusive and what part of that was sexually abusive she claims that was not the case like i have a quote here from that same letter i'm pretty sure saying um quote my dad never ever sexually abused me nor even exposed himself in front of me if he did he would have surely been locked up unquote but she had a tendency to go back and forth on a lot of things. So like she would say one thing and then later she would like contradict herself. And so I don't know if later on in her letters, she like changed that up or what, but 
Yeah, there was rumors that both of her grandparents were alcoholics and that her grandfather was physically, verbally, and sexually abusive to her growing up. So it's possible that that's kind of like what started her like down that road. Then at, I, I saw differing accounts. So I saw either at age six or age nine, Eileen was burned in a fire and it left scars on her face after she and her brother set fires with lighter fluid. Why were they doing that? what kids are stupid my dad has a story about one of my uncles there was like an empty can or something Mm -hmm. that of like oil and he was like what would happen if i dropped a match in it my and my dad at the time was just like well why don't you find out and so he threw a match in there and then nothing initially happened so then he like puts his face over top of the can and then so did he like no he's still alive (laughs) he was very mad about that but i mean yeah, but it was like minor burns, I think, because he like pulled away quickly. But yeah, it was just kids are stupid. Kids are gonna like they're gonna f- figure out like how to do whatever they want, <laughs> even if it's not safe. But if you see pictures of Eileen, you'll probably notice that she does have a distinct face. Mm-hmm. So that's part of it is that she she had scars from that accident. So in middle school, Eileen started to exhibit hearing loss, vision problems, and trouble in school. And her Why IQ was. Why does she have hearing and vision problems? I it I don't know. It didn't say. Oh, okay. <laughs> Uh, And she had trouble in school and her IQ was established to be 81, which is apparently in the low, dull, normal range. I don't know what the range is, but I'm pretty sure somewhere in the 70s is to be considered like, I guess, special ed, like that Mm -hmm. range. So she was raped at the age of 13. It was by someone who picked her up while she was hitchhiking, who claimed to know her grandfather. I have a quote here. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it did say, quote, the guy did say he knew my dad and where I lived. Um, he picked me up out of the pouring rain on 20 in Rochester across from the Clark Station, unquote. So basically, like I saw that it was an accomplice of her grandfather or something like that in a couple of places. But I was looking for more information. And that's actually from one of her letters was like explaining what had happened. So that's a little bit more clarification. But. She did get pregnant from that encounter, and she gave birth to a son at the age of 14 in March of 1971, and the boy was put up for adoption. That's good. Then a few months later after that, Eileen dropped out of school, so she only had probably about like a ninth grade education. Mm -hmm. She did like teach herself a lot of a lot of different subjects like i think she talks about like theology a lot she she talks about jesus and god a lot in these letters so if you are not a christian and that stuff does not interest you you're going to skip over a lot of that book <laughs> so basically she taught herself a bunch of subjects after she dropped out but she formally only had like a ninth grade education mm-hmm. it's funny because she said in one of her own letters that like the day that she like she was explaining the day that she dropped out she was like caught smoking in a stairwell with a friend and to avoid like getting in trouble sort of she's like because the principal i think it was the principal caught them and he was like go to go to my office right now and so the the friend went and eileen's like no i'm not going i quit <laughs> So Ma'am, that's left. not how that works. Yeah, and she just left. And I was like, oh, okay. I'm surprised right. the principal didn't like file some sort of like 
<laughs> like because it's the seventies. They didn't care back then. Yeah, I guess because it's like kids are supposed to be in school up to a certain age. So I'd, yeah, I'm but surprised. I think that's more of a, like a recent. I think that was established in the nineties that you had to be at school. Probably. Because I know... I didn't look into that. My school, the one that I graduated from, you couldn't drop out without a parent um, Mm -hmm. consent form until the age of 16. Or 17. I'm so sorry. 17. Yeah. So around the same time that she dropped out, her grandmother died from liver failure. And so... I saw either like right after that or when she turned 15. So like within the next couple of months after that, her grandfather threw her out of the house. And that's when she turned to sex work to provide for herself. So she was basically on the road hitchhiking between different states from then until she turned 20. And in that time, she developed quite a criminal history. How did she not get murdered? It's like the 70s yeah. is when the hitchhike murders were big. I know. that. Like, that's the thing. I don't understand how she survived, but she, to she be managed. Honest, she looks like a woman I would not want to, like, be in a fight <laughs> with. She looks true. like she could kick my ass. Yeah, that's very true. She she definitely had a temper. Like that's one of her the characteristics that people were constantly saying. Like she, it was easy to set her off. Yeah. Um, and we'll go a little bit more into that later when we talk about her official diagnoses. And so, part of that criminal history included charges for assault, <laughs> DUI, disorderly conduct, armed robbery, car theft, and obstruction of justice. And those are just a few. I think there are a couple other things that she had on her record before all of the murders started to happen. <laughs> this one was interesting. I had never actually knew about this. So in 1976, when she was 20, she met 69-year-old Yacht Club President Louis Bell, and they were married shortly afterwards. Um, apparently, she abused Fell because he claimed that she beat him with his own cane. So he obtained a restraining order against her. And so the marriage only lasted like nine weeks before it was annulled on July 21st of that same year. They ain't get no money. And then a f- few days before the annulment happened, like was officially filed, her brother Keith died from esophageal cancer. So Eileen did get money, just not from him. She got a $10,000 from Keith's life insurance policy. She spent the majority of it within two months. She, I think she like paid off some DUI fine or something like that. And then she bought a luxury car that she ended up wrecking in two months. So Why? Why? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Poor money management skills. Literally. And so... That covers the early part of her life, and this is picking up around the, where the movie Monster kind of starts, so to speak. Um, so in 1986, Eileen met Tyria. I don't know if it's Tyria or Tyria. I'm going to say Tyria just because it's easier, so I apologize if that's not correct. But Tyria Jolene Moore at a lesbian bar in Daytona Beach. And her name was Sylvie in the movie. Yeah, so that was one big difference was that it wasn't... Like in the movie, they had a fictionalized version of Tyria named Selby Wall. And apparently Selby is nothing like (laughs) Tyria was in real life. I I have a little bit more information about that towards the end that we'll talk about. But that was one of the major differences was that they changed the love interest or the person that was in Eileen's life. Like that Selby did not exist. (laughs) So... At the time, Eileen was 30 and Tyria was 24. 
Uh, they spent that night together, the night when they met, um, and then they were described as inseparable after that. They moved in together, and even though Tyria was a hotel maid, Eileen supported them with her earnings from sex work. Tyria didn't actually approve of what Eileen was doing, and she even said uh, she, quote, did everything she could to help her stop doing that, unquote. And like I mentioned, Eileen was known to have a short fuse and wouldn't entertain the idea. They lived a pretty nomadic lifestyle. Basically, they lived between like motels and friends' apartments, and sometimes they would just like live in the woods. And at one point, Eileen even began to call Tyria her wife. And keep in mind, this is before same-sex marriage was legal. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if it was like just affectionate, like, oh, yeah, she's totally my wife, or if it was like a seriously like, committed thing between the two of them was eileen was eileen a lesbian or (laughs) so it's it's weird because she claims and they they kind of touch on this a little bit in the movie she claims that she never actually had any sort of like feelings like same-sex feelings until a girlfriend she had before tyria Mm -hmm. then like she had only been with men up to that point but um, in the movie, like, Eileen was just like, I'm not a lesbian, like, right off the bat. <laughs> and so Well, and it was, was probably a, a taboo subject back then. But I would yeah. probably say she's probably bi. Yeah. Because she still is with men. Yeah. And the thing is, too, is that, like, in a lot of her letters, like, she talks about how she didn't experience those feelings up until she met this Tony person, who was the person before Tyria. And then that like she doesn't consider herself to i think at the time bisexuality wasn't really like well known yeah yeah and so people like she would say i'm not a like i'm i didn't have lezzy feelings that's how she would usually (laughs) refer to it as or or something along those lines and so she at one point like during this whole like talk of reconnecting with with god and stuff in prison she was talking about how she like was no longer a lezzy and all this kind of stuff but she would still talk about how she loved tyria so much and all this stuff she's probably bi yeah yeah and so that's the thing is that like i can't say for sure (laughs) like what her feelings were but it definitely seemed like she was quote turning away from that unquote uh later on in life while she was reconnecting with god listen The one thing that I cannot stand is when people go to jail or prison and then they claim they find God. Well, it's funny because apparently she had always been religious. That's fine, but don't be like, oh, I found him in prison. Yeah, yeah. you found him because you don't have anything else to do. But yeah, apparently she like had always been religious, which I find interesting because it's like if you were, then like why were you doing sex work and why were you doing all these things? And like maybe because of her circumstances, like she didn't really have many other options. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it just it it was interesting reading some of her thoughts throughout this because she would be like explaining why certain things were not okay according to the Bible. But then like, ma'am, you committed murder. Yeah. Like you committed murder. You did sex work. Um, Which is fine. Sex work is like yeah. a legitimate, a, le- a legitimate like yeah. thing to it's do a, to get money. But yeah, it, like if you are claiming to be a Christian, like there are certain things that are like in the Bible that they're like, nah, you can't be doing it. Yeah, they're like core biblical beliefs. To be fair, so. she's breaking a lot of rules. 
Yeah. So, I mean, she she wouldn't be the only one. Like, most Christians don't follow all of the rules. But yeah. anyway, basically, they had a really tumultuous relationship. Throughout her letters in Dear Dawn, she, like, will insult Tyria, like, for her appearance, her personality, and things like that. I had a what couple of quotes here. I know. It was weird. Uh, one of these things here was, quote, I was in love. She had me easily manipulated. Yeah, I was a fool. Such a waste. Wish I never would have met her, unquote. But then she would also say things like, quote, I know for a fact Ty and I would have stayed together for life if this shit had and never happened, unquote. So it's like, yeah. <laughs> it's definitely just kind of seems like a toxic relationship. Yeah, because did, was it their reports that they, I don't want to say like abused each other, but like, is there anything I, like that? I didn't see anything like that but i also wasn't like looking too deep into that part of it because yeah. i think a big part of it too was that i think i mention it later when i talk about like selby and the difference between her and tyria but tyria was a very like private person mm -hmm. in a sense so like she didn't really offer too much information about their relationship or their dynamic or anything like that so everything we really know is coming from eileen's side yeah so take it with a grain of salt because there's they always say there's like three different sides to a story there's one person's side the other person's side and then the truth mm -hmm. and so yeah like i said just take it with a grain of salt there's probably more to it their relationship than all this so eileen in her letters also mentioned that she was intending to stop seeking more clients and she would just kind of stick with her regular clients around this time but Tyria pushed her to still continue picking up like strangers and whatnot so that was quote i had enough regulars to get by but do you think Tyria cared hell no she asked me to still go out unquote so That's that kind of very yeah i was about to say that contradicts what she just said yeah like that contradicts the thing that like Tyria was saying about how she tried everything she could to get eileen to stop so it's like yeah. like i said there's two there's two different sides to to this so Eileen also repeatedly claimed to be an alcoholic. She specifically said a beer alcoholic, and you Man. have to drink a whole lot of beer to get, like, really drunk off of it. I, I don't know. I don't like beer, so I, I that's not my thing. Uh, I think you could build up a tolerance to it, but, you know, yeah. the big ones, you drink yeah. two of those, you're going to be out. <laughs> and then she did say that she never really, like, got into drugs. Like, she occasionally, like would do something here and there but she said it wasn't really her thing that's fair but she does say that she believes her crimes never would have happened if she had been sober because then she would have been able to like rationalize and handle the situation so she was better. drunk or did she do drugs <sighs> drunk i'm assuming she she mentioned a lot how she would drink with her clients and things like that before any they got into anything mm -hmm. so it's I'm, I'm pretty sure like the majority of the times that these things happened she was drunk mm -hmm. and then obviously if she is to be believed about the reason why she murdered these people, then you've also got like the adrenaline and the fight or flight response. And it's mm -hmm. just a bad combination. So like I said, Eileen was often described as erratic and easily angered, but she described herself as being full of love. So later she. Ma'am. <laughs> contradiction. Yeah. So she would later be diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. And we've talked about that in a couple of other episodes. One of the key things is that like you can go from being somebody she like loves like wholeheartedly to an enemy 
very, very quickly, among other things. She was also diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder, which is often when we talk about like sociopaths and things like that, that is often coinciding with that. But she also likely suffered from CPTSD, which is complex PTSD. Mm -hmm. Considering all of the trauma that she experienced in her life, it's very... So like some of the symptoms, like it's obviously if you know PTSD, you know some of those symptoms, but the ones that are additionally added on with complex PTSD are uh, difficulty controlling your emotions, feeling very angry or distrustful towards the world. So that definitely sounded like Eileen as I was reading through these letters. Like she would go back and forth constantly Mm -hmm. about like her lawyers, about Tyria, about basically everybody like going from, oh, I love like I love this person. They're helping me do X, Y, Z. You can trust them. And Mm -hmm. then in a couple letters from there, she'd be like, oh, they're out to get me all this stuff like they're dead to me. Kind of, does she suffer from like schizophrenia? I would not be surprised because I mentioned at the beginning her biological father yeah. had been diagnosed as schizophrenic, and I'm pretty sure that is something that is uh, genetic. Yeah. So it's very possible that she did, but definitely like the BPD and the complex PTSD, like those two together definitely sounded like Eileen as yeah. I was reading through these things. Well, she's so. not just like very paranoid, and I know like. You're very mm-hmm. paranoid if you suffer from schizophrenia. So Yeah. And so that kind of picks up with the crimes. I'm not going to go too much in detail because most people who know about Eileen already know the majority of the information there is to know about it. Yeah. She would ultimately end up killing seven men over the span of about a year. I know some people speculate she killed more, but... I'm pretty sure it was just seven. That's all she claimed she killed. All of her victims were middle-aged white men. Most of them were also robbed and their cars were stolen in the process. And generally, Eileen and Tyria would sell the stolen items at pawn shops for money. So the very first victim, I'm going to go a little bit more into that because the movie focuses mostly on this particular instance. Mm -hmm. Like it it shows some of the other stuff, but it doesn't go as in depth with it. Yeah. So Richard Mallory was a 51 year old electronics store owner. And on November 30th, 1989, Eileen killed him in what she claims was self-defense. You'll see that she goes back and forth on whether or not what she did was in self-defense yeah. throughout like her letters, also in the trial transcripts. since like she, I think the reason why she went back and forth on that is because at one point she just wanted to be done with everything. She just wanted them to kill her instead mm-hmm. of going through all of the appeals and whatnot of this process. I don't think that it was all self-defense, but this first one, I wouldn't be surprised if it was. So she said that he drove her to an abandoned area for sexual favors. Like he picked her up to, you know. He was a John, yeah. Yeah, he was a John. And then he brutally beat her and sodomized her. So one of the quotes, like there was more information about what he did, but I wasn't going to include all of it because it was brutal. But this was one of the quotes from her letter talking about what happened there. So, quote, Richard Mallory raped me, whereas he tied me to the steering wheel, then proceeded to vaginally and anally rape me for nearly two hours, unquote. And the reason why I believe that this one was actually genuinely self-defense is because he later turned out to be a convicted rapist. So it's not a far-fetched story at all. But that was never actually allowed into court. 
like the fact that he was a convicted rapist. So we'll, we'll go more into that later when we talk about the trial. But police found his abandoned car two days later, and then they found his body almost two weeks after that in a wooded area. I saw that he was also found in a junkyard, so I don't know like which of those two is correct. Mm-hmm. But I saw, I saw both of those in various sources. So he had been shot multiple times. Yeah. And so... Like I said, I believe that first one could have been in self-defense. I don't think, I don't know or think that the rest of them were, but we also don't have a whole lot of information on them. Yeah. So her other victims were David Spears. I saw he was either 43 or 47, but I feel like it's a very large age gap. I was going to so say, that's very large. <laughs> I also want to point out, just because that they were Johns doesn't mean that they deserve to be murdered, because... Yeah. You can't make money from sex work if you don't have clients. So just because they chose to buy sexual favors from her doesn't deserve their death. Yeah, exactly. So David Spears, like I said, 43 or 47 year old construction worker. He was declared missing May 19th, 1990. His naked body was found along Route 19 in Citrus County, Florida, and he had been shot six times. It's always There's Florida. Charles- yeah, well, yeah, she was in Florida. When no, all I'm just happened. saying it's always Florida that gives us these cases. True. Uh, and then we've got Charles Carscadden, who is a 40-year-old part-time rodeo worker, which I thought was an interesting career. May 31st, 1990, I believe, was the day that he was murdered because they found his body on June 6, 1990, in Pasco County. He'd been shot nine times. Apparently his body was wrapped in an electric blanket, and that kind of like sped up the decomposition process, because by the time they found him, he was already badly decomposed. Yeah. Witnesses apparently saw Eileen with Charles's car, and she had pawned off a gun that belonged to him. Then we've got Troy Burris, who is a 50-year-old sausage salesman. <laughs> so I initially just saw salesman, but then like I kept reading other sources and they mentioned he was a sausage salesman. I was like, yeah, I, I probably wouldn't I wouldn't tell people that's what my job was. But I didn't know you needed to have a salesman to sell sausages. Apparently. He was reported missing late July of 1990. His body was found on August 4th of 1990. His body was fairly decomposed by the time he was found, but the cause of death was determined to be two gunshot wounds to the torso. Then we have Charles Humphreys, and his nickname was Dick, and I don't know how that works. Maybe his middle name was Richard. I don't know. Anyway, he was a retired Air Force major and a uh, I think retired police chief and a Florida child abuse investigator. Aww. They do show this one, I think, in the movie, kind of, because mm-hmm. um, at one point they do show her interacting with somebody who turns out to be a police officer because they show the badge. Um, She's so like, I th- oh, shit. Yeah. He was found dead on September 12th, 1990, and he was fully clothed and had suffered multiple gunshot wounds to the head and the torso. That's so, what makes me believe that he might have been picking her up to, like, arrest her, and she killed him. Yeah, so it's either that, or I think he was, like, picking her up to try and help her. Because they do show that there there is an instance of that in the movie where somebody picked her up to help her, and then because he saw her gun, she ended up having to shoot him so that there weren't any any like witnesses which makes that. no sense because do you know how many people have guns just because you see yeah. a gun and especially if you're a sex worker like you need something for protection because not everybody's going to be there are people who are going to hurt you in your profession because they want to take advantage of that and so this next this next victim i think was one of those people who was picking her up to try and help her peter sims i think he was 65 years old i did couldn't find an occupation anywhere 
but he was leaving Florida and heading either for New Jersey or Arkansas. I saw both of those locations, and that's two very different directions, but regardless. He was leaving in June of 1990, and his car was found on July 4th, and his body has never been found. So his is the only body they never found. Does she not want to tell like where it's at or? Well, no, she mentioned in some of her letters that like she tried to help them find it, but they wouldn't take her to look in certain places that she was because she she said she couldn't really remember what happened that night. Mm-hmm. So either she blacked out or she was like just super drunk. I couldn't find that too much information on that. It's probably one of those trauma makes you. I mean, I assume it would be trauma, yeah. but like suppress your memory. Yeah, and like especially if like with PTSD, like you tend to dissociate in certain moments. So I think mm-hmm. that's possible. Like what happened in one of these circumstances is that she dissociated. So she couldn't remember necessarily where it was, but then also the police just wouldn't really take her to look in certain places where she thinks that the body might've been. So yeah, to be fair in their defense, they don't know if she's just like jerking their chain, trying to get that's out of the prison or if she actually knows where it's at. That's not really yeah. I mean I can't really say I blame them for not taking her because you know how many people yeah. are like, oh yeah, I'm gonna show you this buddy. Yeah. Psych. So witnesses reported seeing two women matching Eileen and Tyria's descriptions driving his car before they found it. So that's kind of how people start like they started to get onto their trail. And then finally, we have Walter Antonio, who is 62 years old. His partially disrobed body was found on November 19th, 1990. He'd been shot four times in the back and the head. And that's why I think this one wasn't self-defense either, because if you're shooting somebody in the back, that means they're they're running running away. away. His car was found five days later in a different county than where they found the body. Mm -hmm. So they eluded capture for many months, but police were able to lift finger and palm prints off of Peterson's car uh, that both. Eileen and Tyria had left in there. They had apparently crashed the car and then abandoned it. And they did show something like that in the movie. They also found her thumbprint on a receipt from one of the pawn shops where they found items belonging to Richard Mallory. Other than this, there wasn't a whole lot of concrete evidence. And so they arrested Eileen in a bar in Port Orange, Florida. By that time, Tyria had actually returned home to Pennsylvania at Eileen's insistence because they knew that they were like looking for them. Mm-hmm. One of the quotes from the letters was, quote, uh, Tyria and I both saw sketches while watching the 12 o'clock afternoon news of which I was on my way out to hustle getting ready. I told her, Tyria, go call your parents and get them to send you bus or plane fare home. Tell them you lost your job. Lee left you flat broke and there's nothing else you can do. She did and her parents agreed to send 150 for a bus ticket, unquote. So it looked like Eileen was doing what she could to protect Tyria because Tyria didn't actually like murder anybody but she did help like she's with an selling. accomplice so yeah, she, she did help with selling some of the stuff and she knew at least generally about her murdering people so yeah she's definitely an, uh, an accomplice after the fact yeah because of the lack of evidence when they went to arrest Tyria, they basically offered her a deal to avoid prosecution if she was able to elicit a confession from eileen and this they show something similar to this happening in the movie I remember us both being very, very mad about it because <laughs> it's like yeah. she just turned so she flipped so easily. Part of me gets it because we all have this self-preservation. When like, nobody wants to go to jail. Yeah, we all have this idea of self-preservation. We want to keep ourselves safe. And I get that. 
but this person like you claim to love this person and then you flip on them and then also try to like sell movie rights <laughs> on the we'll go into that a little bit more here in a second i was gonna say ma'am i didn't hear that part yeah that that wasn't in the movie but it was it happened in real life basically they had phone calls while Eileen was being held before trial and all that, where mm-hmm. the phone calls were recorded. Basically, Tyria claimed that the police were going to pin everything on her if Eileen didn't confess. And so Eileen eventually did confess. And here's a quote about why she said she confessed. She said, quote, all our 11 phone calls were recorded as she worked as an agent for the cops to get me to confess. Why I actually did is because over the phone, she threatened to kill herself, unquote. Oof. So. Like she mentioned in an earlier quote, how easily manipulated she was by Tyria. So it's like, this is one of those prime examples. Yeah. So at one point during Eileen's incarceration, <laughs> this part was weird. I'm, I'm just going to say this now. It's weird. And we'll get right to that after a quick word about our sponsors. If you have an interest in horror and oddities and want to turn those interests into unique and colorful bath treats for your self-care days, then this is the shop for you. Men in the Moon Mystics is a woman-owned business here in the U.S. She makes all kinds of bath and body products, like bath bombs, lotions, body butters, and so much more, most of them cryptid and horde-themed. All products are vegan and cruelty-free, which means they are never tested on animals, and they smell amazing. You also get crystals hidden inside some of your products, which is always a pleasant surprise. So to get 15% off your order, use our code PODCAST15 when you check out. Again, that's Man in the Moon Mystics. Get your first order 15% off with our code PODCAST15. Some born-again Christian woman named Arlene Prowl reached out to her and said she wanted to legally adopt her because God told her to. What? Yeah. So, like, Eileen agreed to it. <laughs> so she was legally adopted by this woman on November 22nd, 1991. Keep in mind, she's already, like, in her 30s by this point. <laughs> I was going to say, can you legally adopt a 30-year-old? Apparently so. <laughs> Throughout their relationship, Eileen was constantly paranoid about Arlene's intentions. And she goes back and forth constantly in these letters, like, saying she's someone who can be trusted or saying that she's only in it for the money. What money? What money do you get? Well, that's the thing is that apparently in Florida, I I think it was like everywhere at one point, but then like specifically in Florida, there was Son of Sam law, which prevented people from making money off of their own story or something like that. Ugh, um, I hate the Son of Sam. Yeah. And so they had this law in place so that Eileen herself couldn't get any money off of like interview appearances or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But her lawyer could, Arlene could, and so she constantly was going back and forth on okay, whether or not Arlene sense. could be trusted. Yeah. Which was a prime example of the, her paranoia of the borderline black and white thinking and all that. So during her taped confession to the police, she seemed more focused on clearing Tyria's name than her own. So one of the quotes from that confession was, quote, I took a life. I'm willing to give up my life because I killed people. I deserve to die, unquote. So... I definitely think that there was some suicidal aspect to her because <laughs> like she definitely goes back and forth between like like claiming that her stuff was in self-defense and so she doesn't deserve to be killed mm-hmm. and then things like that where she's like, I deserve to die. Yeah. So 
This confession was apparently like leaked to the media. So that influenced whether or not it would be admitted into evidence. So because it was leaked to the media, they were allowed to bring that into evidence. So even if like she said something different on the stand, that just makes it seem like she's lying Mm -hmm. because they had this, this confession where she was claiming like trying to clear Tyria and keep her safe, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So while she was in prison, she became even more paranoid because she was constantly... I I think she suffers from schizophrenia. I would not be surprised, but there were a lot of different letters where she was talking to Dawn about her food being tampered with and people were out to get her, like the cops like she was constantly focusing on how the cops like were were out to make money off of her story and they were i think i wrote it down at some point but there were three cops who along with tyria were selling like the information to is that legal (laughs) i don't know um (laughs) i don't i know that the the police officers got in trouble like i think two of them were demoted and then one of them ended up like leaving the force because of it but I don't know if it's necessarily illegal to do that. I feel like it should be illegal. I agree. So there was a ton of media attention around the case. Because she had killed men in different parts of Florida, like different counties, she actually was going to be subjected to six separate trials in different Florida counties. They can't just they couldn't just try her in like federal court? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> I guess because it was like all in one state. Because if they cross, if she crossed state lines, then I think that would have been a federal case because then it's multiple states. But other than that, yeah. But it just seems like <laughs> such a waste of money to... Um... Oh, it, it absolutely is a waste of money to do that. But she actually was only ever tried for Richard Mallory's death, which oh, okay. is the, fir- the first one. So that started on January 13th, 1992. And throughout her trial, she insisted she killed him in self-defense. And like I said, I would fully believe that that's a possibility because of his past that's like the Um, worst one to try her on like you literally could lose but like i mentioned earlier he had served a decade-long sentence in a prison mental institution for sexual assault after pleading insanity but this evidence was never presented in court so people didn't know that he was a convicted rapist until after the trial but i feel like that would have been important information to know because that establishes a pat like a history with that yes yeah. cuz it's not like eileen would have known something like that yeah. so it's not like she would be able to make up her story based off of his past mm-hmm. you know so she did later retract the statements about the other killings being in self-defense, but she repeatedly insisted in her letters to Dawn throughout the book that all of them were in self-defense. So like I said, mm-hmm. she kept going back and forth on her story. And so she was seen as contradicting herself like all Which the time. probably hurt her. Yeah. I think it hurt her for that. And then she also changed her story, I think, to speed up her execution, like I mentioned before. Mm, got you. So prosecutors were able to introduce evidence from the other murder charges because of what's called the Williams Rule, which, quote, allows evidence related to collateral crimes to be admitted if it helps to show motive, intent, knowledge, modus operandi, or lack of mistake, unquote. But they so wouldn't be- allow them to tell... I know, right? Like... Okay. <laughs> so... Basically, they were able to talk about her other crimes that she was going to stand trial for in this trial, even though I don't think normally you can do that. But I I think this is a specifically Florida rule. Florida has these weird ass rules. Agreed. Tyria ended up testifying against Eileen in court. So that's another like big 
F you to Tyria. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Eileen insists that she that Tyria was involved in a movie deal for what ended up being the movie Overkill that three cops involved in her case were working to create. Is that an actual movie? Yes, it's an actual movie. So, quote, with no other than my ex-lover, she's lying through her ass that it wasn't self-defense because she's been promised by the cops hundreds of thousands of dollars. And no matter how much I loved her and showed it to her, she's willing to take me down for the almighty dollar, unquote. What's important to note, though, is that Eileen and her attorney also sold rights to her life story about two weeks after she'd been arrested. But she later claims that she didn't understand the contracts that she was signing and she was pressured to do so by her attorney and Arlene. So keep that in mind. It's entirely possible she didn't know what she was signing. I wouldn't be surprised. So This is an old movie. I know. it's It like literally came out like right around, I think, 1994 or something like that yeah or 95 and so that was literally like two or three yeah so it was it was right after so her this is weird so she had an aunt and uncle who were raised with her when she was living like with her grandparents but kids were they raising jeez they were raising four but because they were her aunt and uncle but they were also like her stepbrother and stepsister like i I didn't i didn't know what to call them like that's that's such a weird dynamic anyway but they also took the stand against her and their testimonies were pretty damning they were claiming that there was no abuse by their parents as they were growing up so i'm sure that like twisted people's perception of Eileen's uh, growing up and the mm-hmm. circumstances in which she did. She took the stand in her own trial, even though her attorneys advised against it. I Why write... would she do that? I, Eileen is one of those people who is constantly trying to defend herself, but I think she gets so emotionally invested in it that she yeah. ends up like Ruining getting it. mad. Yeah. yeah. And so it definitely did not help her case at all. Uh, The jury deliberated for 91 minutes before Eileen was found guilty of first degree murder and armed robbery on January 27th, 1992. So Eileen, furious with the verdict, shouted, quote, sons of bitches, I was raped. I hope you get raped, scumbags of America, unquote. (laughs) So like I said, she, her temper does not help her at all. At all. She would later waive her right to trials for the other murders at the advice of her attorney and her new adoptive mother, Arlene, (laughs) though she later claims that she was tricked into doing so by them. Okay. So, like, she pled guilty to a couple of them and I think no contest to a couple, but she was never actually charged with Peter Sims' murder because his body was never found. Yeah, that would be a nobody trial. Yeah. Yeah. She received a total of six death sentences, which at the time was the highest number that anyone had ever received. Most people, I think, only received a maximum of three. And apparently under Florida law, even if committing murder in self-defense, one can still be convicted to a death sentence. And I wrote this really long explanation from the Florida Penal Code that talks about this. I'll read just a little bit of it. Um, what classify, like what falls under this, mm-hmm. <laughs> this, this law. So it's like under certain circumstances. So if there's a murder of a police officer, a firefighter, the defendant murdered two or more victims, that the defendant committed a murder for hire, or that the murder was intentionally committed in the course of a kidnapping, burglary, robbery, aggravated rape, or other statutory specified felony. So those end up falling under the capital murder trial situation. And they said because she also robbed Mallory, that it was considered within the criteria for the death penalty, basically. Hmm. 
even though it was self-defense. And it's weird to me. I didn't look it up um, like when Florida established the stand your ground rule, but I'm pretty sure like if it was self-defense that that would counteract it. I don't know. It probably would have helped her if she had not murdered six other people. This is very true. But I feel because she was only convicted of that first or only on trial for that first one. I don't know if it would have changed anything. Then again, they were, they were able to admit the, uh, the stuff from the other trials to establish. But I also think the senior gown rule is you do it for self-defense, but you have to like call the authorities right after oh. you can't like just hide the body. Yeah. That's where she fucked up with that. Cause she probably could have got self. She, she probably could have got self-defense if like she had called and told them mm-hmm. what happened. But because she is a sex worker, she yeah. probably did not want to do that. And that's another important thing to note is that because she's a sex worker, she probably didn't think the police would believe her either. And mm-hmm. clearly, like in this instance, the jury didn't believe that was a mitigating factor either. She spent a total of 10 years on death row after being sentenced to death. In April of 2001, she fired her lawyers who had been working on her appeals and sent letters to the Florida Supreme Court and to each of the counties where she'd been charged asking for her ex- execution to be sped up. Can you do that? Apparently. <laughs> like, I thought you had to like sit on death row for like years. Well, she was on there for 10 years, but I think she was just tired of things being dragged on. So she was like, can you just kill me now? You know, because like I mentioned before, like she was paranoid about people be in the prison being out to get her, like yeah. the prison guards and other inmates and just everybody, basically. Um, so basically those attorneys that she tried to fire were concerned with some of the comments she made that made it seem like she was disconnected from reality. So there was a temporary stay of execution put in place so she could be psychologically evaluated. What does that mean? Basically, they're like, you can't because part of the death penalty and like executing somebody through the death penalty is that they have to understand why they're being executed. Yeah, Uh, they have to be ruled legally, like mentally competent and understand why this is happening. And because they thought she might be disconnected from reality, they were like, "Okay, you need you can't execute her right now until we get somebody in here to evaluate her. But they were fired. What do they care? (laughs) I don't know. So in 2002, then Governor of Florida, Jeb Bush, lifted that temporary stay of execution after three separate psychiatrists declared her to be mentally competent. So she was executed by lethal injection on October 9th, 2002. And her last words were reportedly, quote, I'd just like to say I'm sailing with the rock and I'll be back like Independence Day with Jesus, June 6th, like the movie, big mothership and all. I'll be back, unquote. (laughs) So if you hear that and you think that this person is connected with reality, I don't know. Like, I swear, I think she suffered from schizophrenia. Yeah, like that's the thing is like, I I don't tested for it. they, They probably didn't care enough. To, to do that. So she was cremated and then her remains were scattered by her friend Dawn underneath the walnut tree on Dawn's property because Dawn owned like a farm or something along those lines. So some of the aftermath, Eileen uh, is considered to be one of the most prolific female serial killers, although she doesn't believe she counts as one since she killed in self-defense and never mutilated the bodies. Ma'am, you shot somebody nine times. I know. And then you also shot one like in the back. So I just would like to point out that Eileen is not like somebody whose cause should be championed entirely because she's uh, a racist she was very racist like she made multiple comments about her uh hatred towards black people but here's one in particular 
quote, by the way, if I'm supposed to be such a serial killer, why didn't I kill blacks? I'm prejudiced as shit towards an entire class of them, especially them crack monkeys. Uh, okay. They're simply, they're simply as much of a waste in society as a crooked cop is, unquote. Jesus so, Christ. Like, she was not shy about the fact that she was a racist towards black people. So I just wanted to point that out. But her case brought up the conversation about self-defense rights for sex workers, which is an important conversation to have. Absolutely. And one of the quotes that she did say that I thought was really important to highlight was, quote, it shouldn't matter who you are or what your workplace is. Self-defense is self-defense. No one has the right to lay any physical abuse on anyone, unquote. I agree. Yeah. However, (laughs) like I said, I don't believe that all of these murders were committed in self-defense. No, I think the first one for sure. Yeah. So there have been tons of various media about her life, books, movies, TV shows, documentaries. There's apparently even stage productions, like a, like not a musical, but like a plays and things like that. Oh, a so, musical. I know. So the movie Overkill, the one that I mentioned earlier, um, oh, apparently it was released in like 1992, is the one that three cops involved in Eileen's case, Anterior Moore, were involved in financially. It must have not have been that big. So I have never heard of it. I had never heard of it before either. Um, so she actually believes that this movie and a few other things, she never received a fair trial, but all of her appeals were denied. So like, it didn't really matter necessarily that there was these people like selling her life story and are out to basically, she believed that the reason they were trying to make it so that she was like considered a serial killer was because they needed this movie to do fine, del- do well financially so that they mm-hmm. could get the big bucks. Yeah. Which I'm not, I like, I, I don't disagree with, but you still murdered seven people, so <laughs> I, I think that counts as being a serial killer. Okay, so the most well-known movie <laughs> about her and her case is the movie Monster, which was released in 2003. That's the one we watched. Yes, that is the one that we watched. It is written and directed by Patty Jenkins. You probably recognize that name because she also directed Wonder Woman and Wonder Woman 1984. Um, And it starred Charlize Theron and Christina Ricci. Charlize actually won an Oscar for her performance. And, like, she was fantastic in this movie. She looked, like, her appearance went... Yeah, she like she did a lot were, to get herself to look like Eileen. Eileen. Yeah, yeah, there were like prosthetics and and fake teeth and just everything. Like she, I was saying, she, cause I was like, I know her jaw's not over bit like that. <laughs> no, no, she she is like she was dedicated to that role, and I she did like it was a well deserved Oscar. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of things that, as I was researching, I was like, okay, that's not accurate, but. I mean, that's that's anything based on a true story, you know, mm-hmm. um, like it's never going to be 100 percent accurate. So one of the <laughs> this is probably very minor, but Charlie's Theron is 5'10 and Eileen was only 5'4. So like in my head, when I when I like saw that Eileen was only 5'4, I was like, wow, she's my height. Like, she, she just like, I don't know, for some reason, even before I had seen the movie, I just thought Eileen was a lot taller was than she was. I she was like pushes six foot. Yeah, so like I was like I always just pictured in my head that she was taller than she was, but maybe it's because she had such like a big. I was about pers- to say she does have like a big personality, so that could make up for the height. Yeah, so that was that was just a minor thing that I pointed out. Like you don't need to have your actor be exactly the same height as the person, but I feel like five ten versus five four, it's a very different like. Yeah, but Charlie's did great as her. Yeah, so absolutely. 
Um, and then we mentioned earlier, Tyria Moore isn't actually in the film, but a fictionalized version of her is instead. The character's name is Selby Wall, pr- played by Christina Ricci. According to people that, who knew them, though, Selby is nothing like how Tyria was in real life. <laughs> <laughs> so Selby was a repressed girl from a Christian family who had been sent to Florida to be cured of her lesbianism. At least she wasn't uh, s- uh, sent to one of those electrocution camps. That's true. Yeah, the conversion therapy. Yeah, and that's all what that. I, was yeah. I was like, I don't know. They like <laughs> I, mean, you. I couldn't think of the name. <laughs> that's ex- that's basically what it is. So, Selby was like super whiny, naive. Basically, relied on Eileen to provide for them both. Oh, like, I know. In the movie, she had a cast on her arm, which prevented her from working. But then at one point, she got the cast off, and she still wasn't working. And I was like, uh, hello, <laughs> ma'am. And then and complaining so- about how they don't have any money. Yes. And then Tyria was described as basically the opposite of that. And apparently Tyria was also an out gay woman. Like she like it wasn't a secret that she was gay. Yeah. Which like this is the opposite of being somebody who's like a repressed like she she's repressed. <clears throat> she also was like not entirely sure how she felt towards women, I think. Like she, she was She was still she, trying to figure out what her sexual orientation was. Yeah, exactly. Like, one thing to note is that Tyria had asked for her name and likeness not to be used in the movie, so that's probably why they had to create this fictional version of her. Yeah. And because she was such a reclusive person, she didn't give out many personal details, she, like, they didn't have a whole lot to work with in making it seem like she was, like, Tyria. So, another difference was the portrayal of the attacks. So there's little evidence to presume that all of her victims were Johns that were paying for sex or like weren't just people like trying to help her. Yeah. Um, So I think that was a big that was a big critique that I saw by a lot of other people because only a couple of the bodies were found with clothes missing or like completely naked. And then other ones, they were still completely clothed. So it's it's more likely that they were probably helping her than actually like getting sex from her. But who knows? However, Eileen would often pretend that her car, like this was a real thing that she would do both in the movie and then also in real life, where she would pretend that her car had broken down and mm-hmm. then she would hitch she would hitchhike with people. So it's likely some of them had picked her up to help her and give her a ride and then like she shot them. Yeah. So some people complained that the movie tried too hard to turn Eileen into a victim and her victims into villains of the story. I didn't really get that aside from that very first one. Yeah. Because I think the second time she murdered somebody, I like, I remember Britt being like, why did she shoot him? Like, he didn't do anything. Yeah, he didn't. Like, Um, Herschel. He didn't do nothing. Yeah. And so it's like, um, she said Herschel because the guy who plays Herschel in The Walking Dead was in this movie. He was the victim who, like, saw the gun and then she had to shoot him. So there weren't any witnesses. He didn't even do nothing. Yeah, so it's I'm like so mad about that. Yeah, so it's just like there are, there are instances in this movie where they show that she's murdering these people and there's no logical reason for her doing it. So I didn't I didn't get that as much other than with the Richard Mallory one, but I do genuinely believe that that one was probably committed in self-defense. So that one I'm not upset about. To be fair, some of the people who were complaining about the movie like the it was mostly like victims families, so I can understand why they That's would not fair. want to like believe that that's a possibility i don't think they painted her too much as a victim i think they did try to humanize her 
because like the movie the title is monster and people have associated eileen with being a monster yeah and so i think this kind of helps explain i think a little bit more about her so that people can understand that it wasn't all her like she wasn't yeah uh, like part of it is like her circumstances that got her to that place to where her fight or flight just kind of kicked in unnecessarily. Yeah. She had experienced a lot of trauma in her life. And obviously that's no excuse for murdering seven people, but it's, it's an explanation. So another thing in the movie was that Eileen's sexuality was done a little strangely. Cause in the movie, Eileen says like right off the bat when Selby comes up to talk to her, that she's not into women like at all. But in real life, Eileen had had a girlfriend before Tyria. Uh, the girlfriend's name was Tony, but she claims that Tony was the first time she'd ever experienced any sort of lesbian tendencies. So it's not like it was a very like long term sexuality thing, but the fact that she was like, I'm not into women, you know, like right off the bat in the movie, it, it makes it seem like she made an exception, you know, <laughs> which it wasn't really the case. And then I don't, this one is like kind of iffy. I don't know if this is actually like true or not, if there was any point in real life where this happened. But in the movie, there's a whole sequence where Eileen tries to stop hooking and tries to go straight, tries to get a job. Fucking um, scene was so stupid. <laughs> uh, she wants to leave prostitution because she wants to like be with Selby and be like serious about that relationship because of her lack of formal education. And she has no like real work history. She is unable to get a job. But to be fair, she was applying to like law offices and places that need like you needed a degree to work there. She wasn't going to like a a grocery store like she wasn't going to like starter job. She was like skipping the. I think one of them was a secretary job. But even then, like you still need to know how to like write. And if you're like looking at like if you read the letters in this book, like there's so many spelling mistakes. Well, like I didn't when I copied and pasted them, like I left the spelling and grammar the way that it was. And it's just it was bad. So it's like if you're a secretary, you kind of need to know at least how to spell. Well, I think as some secretaries, you have to have at least like um, experience, but you also have to have a high school degree or a diploma. Yeah. She mm-hmm. does not have that. Nope. But there is no real evidence that I saw that Eileen ever tried to stop sex work in real life. The only thing I saw was that she tried to stop picking up more clients. She just wanted to stick with her regulars because she was able to keep making like she was able to make enough just off of her regulars. But then Tyria was the one who insisted that she continue to pick up strangers to make more money. Yeah. So that was those were the main differences. I'm sure there are more, but those were like the the main ones that I could remember. So apparently they are uh, releasing a prequel to this film. Oh my god, it's now? That's like, damn, 20 years later. Yeah. yeah. It's being released on the 8th, so it's literally going to be one? in a couple of days, yes. So it's they're going to release it in a couple of days. Please I will hold. probably watch it. Yeah, it's called American Boogie Woman. And so I'm excited to see what they do, because this one's focusing more on what happened before Monster. So like her marriage to uh, Louis Fell. And that whole time period, and Peyton are they also, List. Are they also uh, releasing uh, an American Boogeyman, Ted Bundy? Yeah, so they're they're like companion films, sort of, oh, okay. I guess. Because there was American Boogeyman, and then this one's American Boogie Woman. Peyton um, List is playing Eileen. Yeah, she's so, so Peyton List pretty, is playing though. Eileen. I I'm excited to. Well, Eileen was 
like she seemed to take care of herself at that point in her life. Like there's a picture I saw of her with Louis Fell and like she looked like any woman of that time. Like she like was done up with makeup and all that. And yeah. so I mean, I'm sure they're gonna do some stuff to make her a little bit less pretty. But yeah. <laughs> But yeah, so that's coming out in a couple days. It's going to focus more on her early 20s before she became a killer and the short-lived marriage with Louis Fell. So that should be interesting. We'll learn a little bit more information about that. I don't know how accurate to like real life that's going to be, but I guess we'll find out. So that's something to keep an eye out on. And that is everything for this episode. I know it's a little bit longer than our usual, but hey, it's spooky season. We can do whatever we want. Yeah, she was pretty in this picture. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that's the thing is like she, at at times she was pretty, but like the only thing that we ever really see is like her looking real rough in like her mugshots and like yeah. court pictures and stuff. But yeah, so that's that's Eileen Warnos and how monster is based on a true story like they say but uh yeah just don't take it as like gospel Facts. because it's yeah. not yeah <laughs> so that's it for this one you said uh amityville is the next one so we're going to talk about that next time which should be interesting because i actually don't know anything about the murders themselves Me i've neither. only ever yeah i've only ever seen the movie so i know that there's like a supernatural element in that so it should be interesting to see what happened in real life <laughs> so we are on social media we are on instagram at shockingly wicked podcast we are on twitter at wicked podcast one we are on tiktok at shockingly wicked we are on youtube at shockingly wicked podcast we are on facebook you just search us up it's a private group we are like type in shockingly wicked podcast in the search bar we should pop up and then if you have case suggestions ideas for like patreon and all that stuff you can send us emails our main inbox is shockingly wicked podcast at gmail.com if you want to reach me directly it's brianna at shockingly wicked podcast.com we have Brittany at shockingly wicked podcast.com for all things promotional social media etc etc that is everything thank you guys so much for tuning in we will see you next week bye bye